Okay, guys, we're back to our series on conflict, uh, conflict resolution. This is lesson number six uh, in that. And what I think we're going to do, we'll, get, we'll, we'll kind of begin to get into some more practical things, sort of the how-to uh, part of this today. Uh, we've been laying out a, a number of principles in the last several weeks. We'll start getting into sort of what do you do when you know, you're sinned against or what do you do when you have sinned against someone else? What are the, what are the, what's the right way? Where do you begin? How do you walk through that process? We're going to get into those details some today and in, into the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and as I mentioned, we'll touch on the issue of conscience and uh, personal convictions and you know, where that falls and you know, how do you categorize these differences or disagreements that we have. And then I think we can get through that maybe and still have one Sunday left at the end of August. Uh, and I, I, if we can get to that point, what I would love to do is have a, a sort of a Q&A uh, that morning and kind of open it up for just you know, things that have popped into your head about conflict. I actually had a, a lady come up this last Sunday after Bible study and ask a really, really good question about something that I think we'll touch on as we go through this in the next few weeks. But I just told her, I said, listen, I would love, if we don't do that, I said, please ask that question at the end of the series. Um, because it had to do with how do you relate to people, you know, that you have, if a church has faithfully walked through the process of, say, church discipline, then how do you relate to people after that process has been carried out? So do you ignore these people? Do you talk to these people? Do you go after them? Do you stop going after them? Do you avoid them? Because you have terminology in the New Testament about avoiding and, and separating and disfellowshipping, and yet you, you know, it's like, so I think there's a little bit of confusion sometimes about how to handle that. Uh, also in cases where uh, church discipline probably should have been carried out in a, in a professing Christian's life, but they go to another church or maybe they're a family member, and they say they're a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian. And some of the people in our church are trying to figure out, how do I, how do I employ these principles of church discipline in a relationship where there is no church really taking that responsibility on? And then am I supposed to like carry this out <laughs> like, a, like a personal mission? Like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'm going to, I'm going to bring church discipline into their life. And so it's just how do you relate at the Thanksgiving dinner? You know what I mean? It's just if it's a family member, how do, you, how do you work through those details? So those are, we won't be able to get to all that, but that was sort of uh, along the lines of her, her question, and, and we'll hopefully touch on those things. And if you have others, other questions, uh, I think there'll be some time at the end where we can try to tackle as many of those as possible. <laughs> Well, up to this point, we have uh, defined conflict. Uh, we've also said that uh, conflict is inevitable uh, in the Christian life, but that conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we've also examined what the Scriptures have to teach about uh, the, ca- the different causes of conflict, and we spent some time uh, unpacking James chapters 3 and 4, where James talks about problems of selfish ambition and pride and envy, uh, that, that, that uh, conflict, if you will, of desires, James says, within us or in our members, we might even say in our, in our hearts, that leads to conflicts without or in our relationships or, as he says in James 4, among us. 
So he's just saying, if you want to know why there are conflicts among us as people, then you go to the conflict that is within us, right? Which is this battle within that we all face, this, 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 these desires that are even competing with one another in our own hearts. So in, in God's loving purposes, there are going to be times when you don't get what you want. Uh, the problem with personal desires is that many times we want our plan more than we want God's plan for our life, and as we've said, where our agenda is more important to us in that moment than, than God's agenda. And what happens too often is that our desires morph into needs and demands or things that we assume that we deserve, which quickly leads to unrealistic and unbiblical expectations followed by disappointment and manipulation as we attempt to exert control and to punish others in an effort to satisfy our sinful cravings. So that's kind of what we were talking about here. It's the, sort of the, the regression. Some people say the progression of an idol. We say it's probably a, the regression. Right? As we're going downhill when this happens, but we, we start with simple wants and desires uh, and what happens is somehow those things in our own hearts, we, we, we think of them rather than as desires, we think of them as demands or as things, things that we deserve or things that we must have to be happy. And as, we, as this thing goes downhill, we begin to sort of exert control. We have to put other people's opinions and desires and their perspectives down or to criticize those things in order to exalt our view or to exalt our desires, and then eventually if people just refuse to cave and to give us what we want, then we find ways to punish them. I mean, again, this could be physical abuse, or it could be something as as simple as just ignoring people or giving them uh, the silent treatment. So the point here is that the minute that a desire controls my heart... I can only look at you in one of two ways. I either look at you as a tool to help me to, to get or to keep what I want, or I begin to view you as competition or an obstacle who is in my way, keeping me from getting what I want or threatening to take away uh, what I have and what I feel like I deserve, which is why we manipulate and judge and criticize. So we're just saying that the problem here is, again, it's, it's not the fact that we're different. It's, it's what we do with those, those differences and those disagreements. And James just puts his finger very pointedly on these two issues of, of self-exalting pride uh, and self-serving desires or, or lust. And James just says, this, this is going on in your hearts. This is going on in your hearts. A lust for success, a lust for reputation, a longing for domination or dominion or power, a lust for pleasure, a craving for independence, a lust for respect or attention, a desire for comfort and a hurt-free life. And what we do because of the sinful desires is that we begin then to bow down to things that we think will give us those things that we want. So we want the, the reputation, the success, the, the independence, the attention, the respect, the comfort, all that, 
but then we look to things like traditions and retirement uh, accounts and marriage, jobs, our children, having children, entertainment, education, possessions, sometimes even our own planning and preparation. We put we look to our own planning to give us those things. Our skills, our talents, sometimes even our alarm systems, right? We trust and we turn to these things to give us what we long for. And so that's where you go to passages like the Psalms, Psalms 127, 128. You talk about the balance between being prudent and wise, but yet trusting in the Lord, right? So you put a watchman on the wall, but guess what? The Lord is the one who guards the city. It doesn't say not to put the watchman on the wall, but it just reminds you that at the end of the day, the watchman is not going to be really the person that protects you and keeps you safe. Do you build your home? Yeah, you build it, but guess what? Unless the Lord builds it, then it's in vain. So it's just saying you, you, you can put effort into things. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You just have to realize that without the Lord's blessing, it's going nowhere. Right, So you've got to be prudent, and yet you have to encourage trust in the fact that the Lord is our only refuge. So that was just, that's just an example. But folks, that, that's all we're saying here, is that when you're talking about idolatry and, and desires of the heart, you're saying a lot of these desires are not bad in and of themselves. It's just what we turn to to fulfill those desires. Right? Nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. I mean, I have husbands. I just want to be respected. You know, wives, I just want to be loved. <laughs> That's not right. I mean, in fact, you can go to scriptures, right? I mean, a wife can say, well, doesn't, Joel, doesn't it say right there that a husband is supposed to love his wife? Yes, it says that. And that's exactly, we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to help your husband, hopefully, to know what that looks like and how to do that. But you don't have a personal right to be loved. Husband, you don't have a personal right to be respected, I mean, you're, the only way your wife's ever going to do this is to respect you because of her love for Christ. I mean, that's the whole connection that Paul is making in that passage, is that it's, it has everything to do with your relationship to Christ and the Lord. You know, because there's going to be things about this other person. They're not respectable. And yet you're going to be called to do this. Well, how, how do you pull that off? Well, in light, of you, in light of who you are in Christ and what God has done for you. So we've got to look to the Lord. And we have to return the Lord in these moments to His rightful place in our lives, deciding that we want His will for us above all other desires. Now, why is it important for us to, 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 to get that? I mean, why, why, why spend so much time talking about all this? Well, I thought we were talking about conflict. You know, I mean, I got this big thing brewing at work or this big thing brewing with a, a Christian friend or in my family, and, and, and we just keep talking about desires of the heart and attitudes and idolatry. Why are we doing all that? Well, because you won't, you won't resolve conflicts, I mean, thoroughly, unless you understand this, and you certainly won't prevent conflicts, because there are some conflicts that you could prevent. But if you're not dealing with these things in your own life, you're, you're going to be just, you're going to be stirring up conflict, in, in some cases, just un, unnecessarily. So, we need to avoid it, and we need to talk about that. I mean, like, there are some conflicts that we can avoid, um, and there are, as we've seen, some surefire ways to start a conflict. So how, how do we do that? Let me just talk about that initially. How do you avoid conflicts? Well, let me give you some wrong ways to do that. 
So these are some, some sinful ways to avoid conflict. One of those is just, just keeping quiet. Just keeping quiet. Now, there could be times when we should be quiet. <laughs> but I would say avoiding communication as a general rule is sinful. Okay, I mean, folks, we, we are, we are, that's what we do, okay? We communicate, okay? The, that's the way that we are made, okay? The Lord created us. He communicates with us. We communicate with him. We are supposed to communicate with one another. So what we're talking about here is just, just I'm not going to talk to that person. We're not going to talk about that issue, just completely avoiding these things, and, and, and we need to think about our, our motives for both speaking up and for staying silent, because sometimes we stay silent out of fear, right? It's, it's just, we, we can call it something else, but we're just afraid. Uh, or sometimes we're just silent because we're lazy, right? I mean, that, now I see this in a lot of men. It's just, it's just a laziness, right? It just, and you, and you see it sometimes just on the, on the counseling applications, Right? I mean, there's these questions we ask about what's going on, and the, and the men love to give us three-word answers you know, to things like, tell us what's been going on in your spiritual life over the last 10 years, and you get a three-word answer. It's like, some of that, I think, is just, I mean, I understand some, that guys can be sort of to the point and direct about things at times, but sometimes, folks, that's just laziness. That's just I don't want to take the time. And so a guy goes to work, he spends all that energy and all that focus on, on his career and his job. He comes home, and then he doesn't want to engage with his kids or his wife. That's, sometimes that's just, just flat-out laziness. So we don't want to be guilty of that, of just sort of ignoring these things, staying quiet when we shouldn't. In fact, in some cases, for us to not speak might give others the impression that we agree with what they have just said or done, and that could be damaging to them if those ideas go forward unchallenged. So sometimes just keeping quiet is not, not, not the right way. Uh, another one would be staying away from one another. Again, as a general rule, that's not an option. We're commanded to, as 1 Peter 4, 8 says, to be fervent in our love for one another. And the word that Peter uses there for being fervent is, a, is it means to be stretched out with all intensity. So it means you, as much as you can stretch out there to do this, that's the way we need to be loving one another. It's much easier sometimes to just pull back, right, and withdraw, but, but we can't do that. Uh, changing the subject, uh, obviously that wouldn't be good. Uh, that's, that's much like the keep quiet method, uh, but can also involve deception and manipulation, uh, concealing information, sins, or bitterness, those things uh, also clearly not acceptable. But what are some ways we could do this? What are some God-honoring ways that we could avoid conflict? Well, one of those would be to just simply seek to know others well and appreciate their perspective. Um, I can't help but think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter says there, speaking to husbands, he says, You husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. In fact, the King James here says, when he says to live with your wives in an understanding way, the King James says, dwell with them according to knowledge. So it's just saying you have to strive as a husband to understand where your wife is coming from. Understand her 
anxieties, understand the things that weigh on her heart and mind, study her, try to find out where she is coming from and what she's dealing with. And I'm saying sometimes husbands get into conflicts just because they're avoiding communication (laughs) and thinking that's going to solve it. But what they need to be doing is they need to be seeking and striving to understand their wife better, which implies communication. You've got to talk. You've got to listen well those things. Uh, Gathering relevant data before speaking. Okay, that would be one way to avoid conflict because sometimes we get into conflicts simply because we haven't gathered adequate information. So it's important for us to to clarify often what we think we heard or understood. Again, this goes back to we talked about one of the the causes of conflict can just sometimes be simple misunderstandings. So we just got to... Just got to make sure that we're clear about what we're hearing and what we're saying and that we have the information that we need to move forward. So we ask lot, lots, lots of open-ended questions. You know, tell me more about that. You just said this. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what I just heard. I think this is what you just said. And then you say it and say, is that what you meant? Right? And just, just more and more clarification, more information. Uh, certainly praying, studying, thinking about the issue again before speaking. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So again, just that thinking, praying, studying, considering. Sometimes not just what to say, but it can just be something really practical like when to say it. Right? So sometimes it's just, is this the best time to approach this person, okay? Should I catch them right before they're about to do this activity or maybe, or should I talk to them the minute that they walk in the door may not be the best time, okay? So is, it, is, there, is there a better time to do this? Sometimes that's just that, that pondering how to answer. It's not just the words, but it's the occasion and how, how we're going to do that effectively. Uh, demonstrating your love and care at the time of disagreement Romans 12, Shane had, uh, we've gone through this passage recently, uh, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in, in honor. And so I'm just saying it's, if this is someone that we may have told this person a hundred times before that we love them, and what, I, what I'm saying is it's, I think it's helpful in the conflict to reaffirm that. Right, so, so that it doesn't come across as if whatever this conflict is, is somehow threatening what you believe about this person or how you feel about this person. You love this person, tell them you love them in the middle of it, right? Or on the front end of it. When the disagreement surfaces or there's a difference, again, you don't have to go down that road of conflict necessarily, but as the disagreement comes up, just go ahead and reaffirm that, right? Just to say... I. I love you, (laughs) You so don't think that wherever this ends up in the next 30 minutes or whether we get this resolved or not, just know that's that's not going to change, right? So it's good to do that. Listening as much as we speak, Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So again, we we can't avoid both elements here of being good listeners also speaking with, with wisdom and grace, uh, approaching people in love, uh, preferring one another, 
um, in matters of wisdom and conscience, sometimes suggesting that you search script, the scriptures together, um, or as we say sometimes in counseling, don't attack the person, attack the problem. Right? So put your energies into resolving the problem. Don't get where you're eyeball to eyeball with this person and th- think that they're the target. Okay? Resolve the issue, but be careful about attacking that person. Um, you attack that person, you're not going to make, make peace in that situation. Uh, one counselor uh, a friend said, he, he describes us the difference between boxing and, and uh, martial arts. He says, you know, boxing, you put your gloves on and you go face-to-face like this, but martial arts, you don't. You typically use the momentum of the person coming at you, right? You, you sort of use that in, as opposed to bringing force you're trying to sort of bring the force that they're coming with, sort of bringing that under control and, and minimizing that. So that's, that's really what we're talking about here is, is uh, being loving, preferring, working together, not attacking the person, and always refusing to sin in your communication, right? Ephesians four twenty nine. let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So never excuse, never excuse sinful communication. I mean, I, I don't, it doesn't matter how much the pressure, doesn't matter how much force is coming at you, you, you cannot sin in your speech and, 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 and just act as if that's okay. Now, one of the best ways to avoid conflict when another person is angry or when they are coming at you in that way is to give a gentle answer, right? Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So that's, that's key. Um, I, I think I'm, I've got Charlie in here. I've got Randy. Or somebody, like Randy over here, smash serve. See, so you guys play tennis. So Randy smash, this big killer serve. This, this, who's the, Roddick? Is he the big, big serve? Randy serves, but then Charlie over here, he's got that slice game. Right, and so Randy serves a hard flat serve, and then what does Charlie? Charlie just sort of bumps it back, takes the slice approach, and what he's doing is he takes all that speed off the ball, right? If he even gets to it, yeah, if he can get a racket on it, right? So, but but you see this, and Randy, you know Randy and I have played together for in tennis for 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 a long time, and but you see this guys with big serves to watch other guys try to hit the ball back is hard as they're, it's coming at them, very rarely successful at doing that, right? You just take the, all, that, all that force and all that energy and you just use it, right? You just take the speed off of that, much more effective, much more effective. And so when people are coming, just as Scripture says, a gentle answer. Take the pace, if you will. Take the power out of what's coming at you. In this way, in this way it's, it's wrath, right? It turns away wrath. You do that, that's, that's the opposite of stirring up anger, right? You, you take a full swing and go back at them with that kind of momentum, you're just stirring the pot, right? You're, you're just stirring up more and more anger and wrath. Uh, finally, I'd say you, you, when you are sinned against, you can, you can choose to overlook it. I mean, that, that is an option. Um, Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 
So that, that can be an option. Now, it's not an option in every, every case. For example, we would never want to cover up a sin in another person's life if hiding that sin would cause that sin to flourish or to grow in a, in a secretive way. And so Scripture is clear that there is a time for rebuke, and some sins rise to that level either because of their habitual nature uh, that is, that, it, that they become a pattern in a, in a person's life, a destructive pattern. So, you know, you see this sin, you see it again. I mean, I'm saying there, there's a, there could be a time early on when you initially see some of those things that you choose to overlook it, but then after you've seen it, this pattern develop, it, you realize there's something more going on here. There's a, this is a more serious thing that, we, that has got to be, be dealt with. Or sometimes there's a single sin, but a sin that is so prominent in your relationship with someone that you just simply cannot overlook it. The reason you can't is because it has changed your relationship. So it is actually this, it doesn't mean that this thing's happened 30 times. It really, this thing, it may have only happened just once, but, it, but because of the nature of it, it, it changes your interaction with them. Right, like you're not interacting with them the way you, you were before they did this. So, so the interaction changes, or the the sense of, of closeness, or even the uh, the trust that was there in the relationship has been been so affected that that at that point you can't overlook that. I mean, at that point, it's there there, there must be a, a reproof. But I think the first place that we go. Is, is that we overlook the sins that we can, right? So our goal, folks, is not to become the sin police, right? Our goal is to not spend all of our time looking into other people's lives trying to find sin, okay? That's not where our energies should be. Our energies should be on our relationship with Christ, focusing on Christ, dealing with the idols in our own hearts. And as we relate to others, we're going to have these, again, differences and disagreements. People are going to sin against you. They're going to sin against you. You need to live life with this expectation that you're going to be sinned against. (laughs) You are going to be misunderstood. You are going to be disappointed. You're not going to get everything that you want. You just have to go into it. In fact, you've got to come into this morning that way. You've got to to walk into the doors of church and say, you know what, I'm probably going to be offended this morning. I'm probably going to be ignored by somebody this morning. I'm probably going to be misunderstood by somebody this morning, right? We just, and, and, and guess what? When those things come up, we should be quick to overlook. Quick to overlook. Again, if it's, if it's something that's serious enough that you feel like, I can't, I can't interact with that person now in the same, in the same way because that what they did is so affected that, that then, okay, we're going to talk about what, you know, in the next week or two of how to, what do you do then? Or you do see a pattern in a person's life where, you feel like you've got to step in because this is damaging your relationship. It's hurting the t- their testimony with you. It's possibly hurting their testimony with others. And it could be something extremely detrimental to their spiritual life. So it's something that's growing right in the dark. And, and it just is popping out. And, but you know that because of the type of the sin that it is, that you are assuming there's some things brewing under the surface. And you, and, and you may be the only one. That's the thing is you do have to think about this. You could be the only person that saw that. You, it could be a, a moment where that thing did surface in a person's life, and, but other people don't see it. Other people don't hear it. 
So what do you do? Well, you go and you get on the email and Facebook and you tell everybody, right? No, you, you, you go, right? You go to that individual and you talk about those things. We're going to get there. But there's, there's, there's a path. There's a path here on how, of how to, to deal with these things. But initially, we need to overlook the sins that, that we can. Uh, and, and I would say this of, of any proverb, folks. I mean, when you take a, Proverbs like, a proverb like that about overlooking, it's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression, you've got to be careful with the Proverbs, right? I mean, these are general principles. These are, these are axioms. The, the, these are not things just black and white, like, like you don't want to just jerk a proverb out. Because if you just jerk that one out, you just always overlook sin. And then you would boast in it, right? Because you say, it's, the, it's my glory, it's, it's the glory in my life that I don't deal with sin. I just overlook it all. But the thing is, for one, you're not overlooking it because you're keeping a record. I'm sure somewhere down deep there, you're keeping a log list, right? You're keeping a list of all the infractions, all, the, all those things that have been done to you. Um, and you're ignoring all those other principles of Scripture that say there's a time to go, right? There's a time when you can't overlook it. So again, just be just 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 cautious as you as you go to the proverbs and it, it really any passage you just take it take it in its context, but also you need to take it in balance with uh, in consideration for other things that Scripture has to say. So we've got to be examining our hearts, um, dealing with the selfishness and the envy and the pride, walking in humility, so that when the differences and the disagreements come, we don't react sinfully. We need to stop and think looking for God in the midst of the conflict or the disagreement, looking for His purposes and what He's trying to teach us, focusing on pleasing Him, considering what we can do to possibly avoid conflict or make it easier for us to solve the conflict. But what happens when it's already underway? Right. So there's some things you can be doing on the front end to avoid it, but what happens when the ball is rolling? Okay. The conflict has already begun and, or in some cases, has been fully carried out but not resolved. Then what do we do? Well, again, there's right things, there's biblical things we can do, and there are sinful and wrong things we can do to resolve conflict. Uh, some sinful things that we do at times to resolve conflict, and these are sort of, sort of similar, I guess, to some of the things, sinful ways of avoiding conflict, but... Allowing time to heal it, uh, that, that's, that's a very common one. Just enough time. If, if I just allow enough time to pass, then this thing is going to get corrected. I'm going to feel differently about that person. They're going to feel differently about me. It's going to eventually, it's just going to sort of dissipate and just fade out of my memory. And I'm just saying that does not happen. It just does not happen. So our, our Father wants his children to deal with sin quickly, not to let time pass. When you see, and again, we're not talking about preference things. We're talking about when someone has sinned against you or you have sinned against someone else, except for taking a moment to pause to think about how to wisely resolve this or avoid it. You know, it's like you do need to stop long enough to consider your heart, examine your heart, and think about how to approach this. So I'm not saying to rush into it. I'm just saying scriptures are still always driving us in the direction of go. 
You've got to go and resolve this. You cannot just indefinitely sit back and hope that these things are going to get better just simply because the weeks and the months are passing by. Yes, question. Is this mainly This is, I would say these are general, yeah, these are, this is everybody. I mean, I think when I'm, I mean, as I'm teaching through this, I think, I probably think of more of the brother to sister, sister to sister, brother to brother, like Christian relationships. Um, but I think in, in there, are, there are ways to apply this to even our relationships with unbelievers and, and such. Just expectations are different when you're dealing with believers and when you're dealing with unbelievers. I don't expect... Uh, unbelievers to see this, right? I mean, I don't, I don't expect unbelievers to be saying to themselves, I wonder if I'm worshiping something other than Christ right now. That's not what unbelievers think. So when I am in a conflict with an unbeliever, I, my expectations are, are down here, right? And the purpose in any communication I have with that is not to just necessarily, I've got to fix this little thing between us. Ultimately, it is the, the gospel, so I'm just thinking with a much, it's kind of a different maybe end in mind that, you know, I want to be advancing the gospel and that conflict may be the platform you need to share the gospel with an unbeliever, right? Because they're expecting you to react like everybody else reacts. They're expecting you to resolve this the way all their people that they work with solve this, which in most cases is gossip or burying it or letting time heal or that's the, that's what they're expecting and to actually go at this in a compassionate way and to deal with the big rocks and to let the little rocks go you know it's like you know you, all of that's going to be i think very foreign to unbelievers and so just use that as a gospel opportunity but i think mainly we're talking about this this christian christian relationship uh, trying to bury it again that's um you know, just trying to forget about what happened or stay so busy that you don't have time to think. Uh, that only works for so long. Usually, if a person does this, things accumulate. There's, there's just an accumulation of unresolved issues which can easily result in more sin, bitterness, depression, all kinds of, all kinds of fallout from that. Uh, pretending it never happened would be, again, a sinful, sinful way to resolve conflict. All the pretending in the world doesn't erase uh, what has been done either by you or to you. Uh, Waiting for the other person to initiate the resolution process. Again, Scripture is always driving us, commanding us to go and to seek to resolve the situation. Uh, Punishing the other person until they change and decide to take all the blame. Uh, in some cases, people will, will give others the silent treatment or be harsh with them or maybe threaten to leave. Uh, but this method is only heaping sin upon sin. But again, that's, what, that's, that's the way the world deals with this. It, it, it tends to be that extreme of just pretend it's not there, just block it off and just put on a face like everything's fine, or it's the boxing thing. Right, it's it's either I'm going to come, just pretend it never happened, and just move on and forget about it, or I'm going to go right at this person in in, in an attacking kind of way. Well, what are some God honoring ways to resolve a conflict? Well, Scripture calls us to to resolve personal and relational issues through confession 
repentance, uh, loving correction, and forgiveness. I mean, those are sort of the basic components here. So we have these, these commands. One of them is in Matthew 18, verse 15. And again, this is in a section where we, we refer to this whole section really as dealing with uh, this process of church discipline, but just sort of taking that initial verse there, Jesus says this. He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Which, which is the principle of dealing with this conflict as, as privately as possible and not through gossip. Okay, so we have this principle here, we're going to come back and we're going to try to pull all these things together, but we have this in Matthew 18, if your brother or your sister sins, you, you go and you show them, which is uh, interesting because it's, uh, it's, it, there's almost this assumption that they may not see it, right? So it could be something where you're like, well, they would have to know. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's some things that you go when you talk to people about, you're like, there's no way that they don't know that they'd sinned when they did this. But there is this possibility that you would go and talk to somebody about something that is clearly sinful and that they would, there would be a level of self-deception in their life that it would be like you would have to say, can, can, can I show you something? Can I show you what you said or how this... Because they wouldn't, it wouldn't be this clear awareness on their part that this has happened. So you have Matthew 18, and then you have a statement in Matthew 5, verse 23. This is back in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, this, this is sort of the a similar principle or truth, but from the opposite side, because this is from the perspective of the person who has sinned. So someone has something against you, okay? And we have in this passage the added sort of insight that your worship is actually affected by or hindered when you have this kind of unresolved conflict in relationships, so it's just saying, in both cases, whether you are encountering a, a brother who has sinned, and that can be sin against you personally, or again, in some cases, it isn't necessarily directly against you, but you may observe sin, right? So you see sin in a person's life that you feel like is, again, at a level that that, that is detrimental to their testimony or to the gospel or whatever, even though you wouldn't say, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't yell at me, or they didn't say those things about me. They said them about so-and-so, but I know that they said it. So even though it wasn't a thing personally against you, it doesn't mean that you have to wait around for someone to personally sin against you for you to take that up, right? You, you go out of love because you go for the purpose of restoration, you go for the purpose of reconciliation to see this person restored, not just to those that they've offended, but also to Christ. And so you go, but then what this passage tells us is that if the Lord brings to your mind a situation where you have sinned, and you know that someone has something against you, 
it doesn't matter which of those two scenarios we're talking about, the command in both of those verses is the same. And the command is to do what? Go. In either case, you go. So again, there's not this, it's okay to sit back and to wait for them when they're, you know, well, when they want to come talk to me, they can come talk to me. Or when they see their sin, then I'm, I'm ready to talk. Or, well, I know that I did this against them, but it's just between me and the Lord. I'm just going to take this to the Lord. Well, not if you've sinned against them in a, such a way that you're aware of it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, you do need to take that to the Lord. That is a step in the process. Confession to the Lord. But you also have to go and confess when you're aware that this, again, has affected your relationship with that individual. But in both scenarios, the command is to go because this is a big deal. The glory of God is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Your Christian witness is at stake. And the important principle here that is so often overlooked is the principle of getting the log out of your eye. So that's why Jesus... which, which is undoubtedly one of the greatest challenges, I think, in this, this dynamic is dealing with what you may have done, what you may have contributed to this conflict of, of dealing with that before you go and deal with what's going on with this other person. Now, if you're the one who knows you've sinned against another person, right, and you're the one that is leaving your gift at the altar, well, that makes sense. You're going to confess. But I'm saying even in the Matthew 18 passage, even when you're going for the, for the purpose of and the ministry of, of correction and reproof, even in that, you have to at least stop and examine your heart and say, is there something that I did to contribute to that? And if you don't start there, Scripture says you won't even see clearly what's really going on. In other words, there's going to be a level of blindness in your life and you're, it's not going to be thorough, it's not going to be satisfactory at the end if you fail to do this, which is why Jesus is so clear here in Matthew 7, verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, it's it's not a matter i don't think of whose sin is bigger is it is it that your sin is bigger or more severe than their sin or their sin is more or is it less severe than yours that's not the point i think it's an issue of perspective right because you could have what is a speck in your eye and stephanie you could have a speck in your eye but if it's from my perspective my speck should look a lot bigger to me you see what I'm saying? If, if the speck is in my eye, that speck that's actually the same size as yours, to me, should be huge, right, compared to the one in her eye. And so I think this, this is about, about again, about, it's about that approach. It's about the fact that sin is blinding. And in the midst of conflict, it's easy to get confused, right? Specks can look like logs. Logs can look like specks. Because here's the way it actually happens. Your sin is a log, right? I mean, it, to me, because and, here, and I'm thinking about it all the time, and I'm focused on it, and I'm dwelling on this thing that you've done to me, and it seems like it's huge. And that thing that's in my eye, oh, it's not a big deal, right? And so we get confused in these conflicts. We, we, we misassign 
these things. And Jesus is teaching us that in order to see things clearly, we must begin by dealing with ourselves first. Now, what kind of logs do we have to deal with? Well, there's, there's, there's mainly two. Uh, one of them is at that level of attitudes and desires, right? Because sometimes we just have a critical attitude. Sometimes we get into conflicts because even though we can clearly see a sinful thing in a person's life, an, an action or a word in another person's life, what we haven't paid attention to and what we haven't dealt with, dealt with is just an overly sensitive, critical attitude in our own heart, which has is, which is prevented us from overlooking a transgression. It's like we, we, we have never thought about this idea of overlooking a transgression or, 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 or just letting that go, right? Just say, I'm not going to, that's okay, okay? The, 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 these things happen. Sometimes we never even think about that because we're so critical, because we're so sensitive in these relationships. And so we have, to, we have to confess, I think, on the front end that we might have had a negative or critical or overly sensitive attitude that has led to perhaps un, unnecessary conflict. I mean, we've just, our eyes, rather than being on the Lord, our eyes are on, on ourselves. And so we've We've, we've got to do that. We've got to confess those sinful attitudes as well as those sinful desires that battle in our hearts. Some of those that are inherently wrong, such as vengeance or lust or greed, but again, many that are not wrong in and of themselves. For example, there's nothing innately wrong about desiring things like, a, like peace and quiet. I love peace and quiet. Do you, how many of y'all love peace and quiet? Love, peace, and quiet. I go home, Now I don't do this as much now, but it was, you know, when, for, for years in, our, in Kelly and I's marriage, when I would walk into a room, I would start shutting all the blinds. I started going around and turning all the blinds. I love dark. I love it to be dark. I love peace, quiet, and dark. Okay? So I go around, and I'm starting to close the blinds and turn off the lights and because it just something just it just brings a sense of, of calm and control and and she was practically behind me, <laughs> opening up the blinds, turning on the lights, you know. So we just were like, you know, and so I just, oh man, I just coveted that. I just, I just wanted to be able to just come home and just relax and peace and quiet, and uh, nothing wrong with that unless you want that so bad that you're willing to sin against your family in order to get it, right? Or to preserve it. A a clean home. Nothing wrong with wanting a clean home. Nothing wrong with wanting a new computer or professional success or even an intimate relationship with your spouse if you're married. Um, Not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean... If a, if a good desire, right, such as wanting an intimate relationship with your spouse, the question is, if that's not being met, what do you do? Well, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to talk about those things with your spouse. And as you talk, you, you can discover maybe that both of you can help to fulfill each other in mutual beneficial ways. And if not, right, if, you, if you're struggling to, to figure those things out, it could be appropriate to seek help from other faithful Christian 
couples, but, but what do you do if your spouse persistently fails to meet, not a need, folks, but a, a particular desire, and they're unwilling to discuss those things maybe with you at the time or with someone else? I'm saying you stand at, the, you stand at a fork in the road. And, and you, can, you can trust God and you can seek your fulfillment in Him and you can ask the Lord to help you to grow and mature no matter what your spouse does and you can continue to love your spouse, pray for God's work in his or her life. And if you do that, God will bless you and He'll use that difficult situation to conform you to the image of Christ. On the other hand, you can do what we often do, which is dwell on disappointment, allow it to control our lives and at the very least... Those things will result in self-pity and bitterness towards the other spouse, and at worst, it can destroy the marriage itself. This, this, this happens. This especially happens when we let our desires become something we believe we need or deserve and therefore must have in order to be happy or, or fulfilled. So this, again, it's, it's back to this. It's just, what about those desires, Right? And if those things aren't met, then I'm just saying that those attitudes can lead to a vicious cycle. The more that we want something, the more we think of it as something we need, and the more we think of it in that way as something we're entitled to, the more convinced we are that we cannot be happy and secure without it. And that's the, that is exactly the idolatry that we've been, we've been talking about. And, and those that are close to us, we tend to have higher expectations. Right, so that's why I bring this. I mean, examples of marriage and family into this because I think that when we are close to other people, we expect them to understand our desires, and the more likely we are to judge them when they fail to meet our expect expectations. So you might be thinking, you know, with your spouse, if you really love me, you above all people will help to meet this need, and we can we can place expectations on relatives and close friends or members of our church. Again, not, it's not wrong to expect understanding or to expect or to want love and support from those that are closest to us, but we've, we've got to be careful because we can, we can fall into expecting them to give allegiance to our idols. And when they refuse to do that, we condemn them in our hearts and with our words, and our conflicts with them take on a heightened intensity. So we've got to deal with attitudes, we've got to deal with desires, and then that second log I think that we have to deal with are the actual words and the actions, right? I mean, it rarely stays at attitudes and desires, right? But what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I think we fall short if all we do when we confess is simply address the words and the actions because we ought to know, right? We ought to know there's more to this than just those words, we ought to know that there's much more to this than just the behavior because these things, Jesus says, come out of the heart, right? We know, the, the, we know where the fountainhead is, right? We know where the source of these things is. So when we go to confess on the front end, again, even if we're going ultimately to rebuke or correct, but we're beginning with self-examination and getting the log out of our eye, then as we're confessing those things, I'm saying we need to do more than simply say, I shouldn't have said that to you, or I shouldn't have done that. We need to be thinking on a much deeper level than that as believers. 
we need to be thinking about ruling desires, things that are controlling our hearts and sinful attitudes that are just spilling over into words and actions. And I find that if we'll do that, man, that, that is so different when someone comes and says, I didn't just say this about you or to you or do this thing, but I, I, I know what was going on in my heart. It was pride. It was jealousy. It was me wanting to get what I want. It was, I mean, when somebody comes to me and that's what they're saying, I'm like, that, that makes me think that they're serious about repentance, that they're not just jumping through hoops so that they can move on and start telling me the things they think I need to do, right? When they start, when they're confessing at the level of desires and attitudes, that is one of those things that sort of says, you know what, they get this. They understand this. And they're going to work hard at this because they're not going to just work hard at controlling their words and stopping the behavior. They're going to work hard at pleasing the Lord and their life and working on those issues of the heart. And if they work on the issues of the heart, then these kind of changes are going to be lasting changes. And the fruit's going to come. The fruit's going to come. So all of this is involved with examining examining yourself. Again, uh, whether you're going to for that ministry of correction, getting the log out of your eye first, or whether you just know you're in the wrong and you're going to confess, but not simply confess, not simply name specific grievances and sins, attitudes, desires, actions, and words, you're not going to just go and name those things and say, I'm sorry, but you're going to seek forgiveness. You're going to go asking, will you forgive me? Not leaving the issues undefined, not leaving the other person wondering if you know what you did, but getting both of you involved in the reconciliation process. So will you forgive me? And that is, again, if we don't go to that point, it's not... It's not reconciliation. We don't just apologize. We don't just say we're sorry. We ask for something. This is important. We're going to get to this. We talk about forgiveness, but it's important for people to feel the burden and the weight of are they going to forgive you or not? Don't just assume that because you say you're sorry that they did. Right? You need to know if they did. Because when they say, yes, I forgive you, then you're walking away from that relationship having made a commitment to earnestly repent, right? I mean, that you're going to be working on change in your own life. But guess what? When they say that they forgive you, there are some things that now they are responsible to do going forward. And so both of you have some responsibilities, but because that's not always clear, has the person forgiven us? Are they willing to do that or not? Then we leave thinking, okay, everything's better. I named, I said what I was doing that was wrong, They've forgiven me, but in some cases that person hasn't forgiven. And then they can't figure out why two months later that person brings that thing up, right? The pressure's on, the conflict pops out, and they go, well, that's, what you, that, that's why you did the same thing you did two months ago. And you're like, oh, wow, I thought they forgave me for that. Why, how did that come out? So we'll talk about forgiveness and, and those elements. Okay, we'll stop for there. Thanks for your time, guys. We'll pick back up talk more next time about the other that ministry of confrontation how to do that and and again the elements of forgiveness